Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Eric Marcus, uh, host and founder of the Making Gay History podcast. And this is OPP. God bless everybody and welcome back to another episode of OPP, Other People's Podcasts, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is Eric Marcus, host of the amazing podcast, Making Gay History. This podcast gives intimate and personal portraits of both known and long forgotten champions, heroes, and witnesses in LGBTQ history. In this episode, Eric chats with me about his journey of self-discovery, we get his podcaster's picks, and of course, we get into his dope show, Making Gay History. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Eric Marcus. All right, we rocking and rolling. Yo, Eric, what's going on, my man? Delighted to join you, but I just wish I were in Los Angeles and not in New York. Nah, nah. You know what? You know what, man? I miss my friends. I say LA has the weather, but New York has the people. I miss my people. Yeah, I, I've missed my people for the last year um, because of, the, of COVID, of course. Um, I, I joke, my partner and I joke that we're going to, we'll both be uh, ready to actually, uh, we call it our liberation day uh, when our when our vaccines kick in. Um Around the first week in April, we're going to take a trip to the Upper West Side of Manhattan from, from Chelsea, yes, to see some of our friends who've also been vaccinated. Um, it's the only... <laughs> it's the simple things in life that It matters. is, it is. And I can't tell you that, that, I'm, that I'm all excited about being 62, um, but because of the vaccine and you can get it when you're 60, I'm really happy uh, about being my oh, age. Man. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. So first of all, I'm, I'm a big fan of you, I'm a big fan of your show, and your show has really resonated with me recently. Um, you know, I've gone through my own journey of ancestry and seeing people in, and, and learning about people in my past and, you know, and the impact and, and the struggle they went through to get to where they are. And then it made me realize, wow, I have, I think half my family is gay. And so, yeah, so it made me realize like, well, like there were people who were fighting for rights or going through things. Oh, um, yes, I see what you mean by half your family. I was thinking that half your family members were gay. Yeah, about, about half. No, really. But yeah, it, it's quite. I have a, a large gay, like family. So I so. am so jealous. I until my cousin, my little cousin, came out um, about two years ago. I was the only, the only gay person in my entire extended family, as far as I knew. I might have had a great uncle Murray, who I had a great uncle Murray, but he might have been gay. He was engaged three times to women. And the woman he finally married was was more masculine than he was, but I I'm it. Um, other than my young cousin, I'm thrilled that she's she's joined joined the the, the clan. Um, but how lucky for you to have 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 gay family members. Yeah, it was something that you know I I just grew up with naturally. You know, so I didn't see them as even like pioneers. It was they were just my aunts. 
Um, you know, I didn't think of it in that way, but after going through my ancestry and realizing, wow, I had pioneers in my own family, you know, what was that like for you being uh, a pioneer in, in your family? Oh, uh, <laughs> there are other things I'd rather do than what I did. Um, it, it's a, it's a job. Um, I, um, once I was comfortable with, with being out, um, I've explained to any, any number of young LGBTQ people, you may not like being the educator, but it is our job. Um, people don't know what it's like to be LGBTQ if they're not. And so who better to explain it than, than us? But in my own family, it was a slow coming out. First, I had to come out to myself and accept who I was. And the last good cry I had about being gay and feeling sorry for myself was when I was 21. Um, although I had been sort of out from age 17. And so it was one family member at a time. Uh, my brother was the first. He said he didn't care. Uh, my mother was second. She said she felt guilty. My grandmother, my aunt and uncle were third, fourth. My grandmother was fifth. She cried for three days. Um, but then my grandmother was my biggest supporter in the end. Um, she, I love the notes she wrote to my partner. She, she, she referred to him as her grandson from the very beginning. Um, I think she was so happy that he wasn't um, I dated a Jewish guy. She'd always wanted me to date a Jewish guy. And, um, and when I did, she wasn't so happy because she thought he looked too Jewish. My grandmother was anti-Semitic. It's like you have internalized homophobia. Her internalized anti-Semitism was on the surface. And when I met my current partner, who's Catholic, she just loved the fact that he was really handsome and had small features, as she put it. It was, it was, it was in some ways traumatic. I remember taking my uncle to breakfast on a diner in Long Island, Merrick, Long Island, and telling him that I was gay, I was probably 21 um, or 20. And my breakfast is still sitting on that plate at that diner. And this is, you know, 40 years ago. It, it was so important to me that he accept me. And I was so terrified that he wouldn't. It's terrible. I would not recommend having to go through that, that process to anyone. Um, I'm glad I did. I couldn't live with the secrets. Um, I was a terrible liar. And my family ultimately uh, all became huge supporters. Um, there's no one in my family that, uh, at that, as far as I know, who has issues at this point. In fact, most of them came to my, uh, our commitment ceremony 26 years ago. And we had 215 people. We only invited 200. Um, and 215 came. But what's it like for you now being the first person to openly be gay in your family? What's it like now to, to be, you'll be seen now as a pioneer, you know? It's so, it's so funny to be seen that way, because um, I'm seen that way by a lot of young LGBTQ people, um, and I can see how they see me as that. Uh, it wasn't anything I set out to do. I was the only openly gay person at CBS News in the newsroom, um, CBS National, in 1988 for morning news. Uh, I didn't want to be the, the first person, but I, I was. Um, I was one of two openly gay people in my class at Columbia Journalism, at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University in 1983-84. And both my, my friend and I, uh, my friend Stuart and I, couldn't believe that we were it. So it's not that we set out or I set out to be a pioneer. I just was lucky enough to have been born, uh, born after the Stonewall Uprising at a time when those of us who were coming of age assumed, just assumed we could be who we were and have lives. But what became clear to me was that there were doors that were closed because of who I was. I was interested in running for elective office in New York City. There was nobody who was out when I was uh, first thinking about that. Um, so I wound up working for a politician as a press secretary. But I had to go back in the closet to work for him, which lasted six weeks. Um, I wanted to be on camera to be an, a correspondent for CBS News, uh, for National News. 
But I was told that an openly gay person, they'd never put an openly gay person on camera. So there were wow. things that were close to me because I was out. Um, but I wouldn't have had the career that I did if I, as, as a writer, and I would never have written my book, Making Gay History, or had my podcast, if um, the doors that I had wanted to go through had been open to me. So, you know, I, I really can't complain. I thought that being gay would ruin my life and ruin my career. And in fact, it has been my career and uh, it's been very rewarding. I get the pleasure of interviewing, like yourself, getting to interview amazing people and people who've done amazing things in the past. But sometimes from interviewing people in the past and people in the present, I get a different lens of realizing like some things have changed and some things haven't changed. Um, what things do you feel like have changed, but some things still remain the same? One thing that hasn't changed um, is that, that it can be very difficult for young people growing up. Um, I hear for, from young people, not just in the U.S., but South Africa, uh, Russia, Latvia, um, places around the world um, where it is not nearly as free as it is here. And from, uh, from Nigeria, Uganda. Um, so it really depends where you, are, where you are, how much has changed. So in New York City, where I live, in Chelsea, the world has changed uh, to the point where it just doesn't matter who we are. My partner and I never walk on the street holding, our ha holding hands. So um, I, don't, I still don't think it's safe. Well, they might just think we're two old guys. He has white, white hair. Um, they might just think we're two old guys and they don't pay any attention. They're just thinking I'm helping him across the street or he's helping me across the street. One of the advantages of being older, um, people don't think of you as a sexual being. So you're just old. <laughs> so the career opportunities, and I, I have to admit to being jealous. I watch Pete Buttigieg and um, uh, I mean so many other people who are in political life now. And, and the opportunities that they're able to pursue because, uh, because it, these things aren't closed to us as gay people. Um, but the world still isn't safe for all LGBTQ people. I mean, it's safe for someone like me. I'm a white cisgender guy um, of a certain age. I'm not a, a person of color or a trans person for whom the world is not safe. So it's, I'd say it's, it's uneven. Um, but compared to what it was like when I was growing up, um, it's a transformed world. It's just simply transformed. I, I used to say I would never live to see the day when, when gay people could get married. Um, not everyone wants to get married. Yeah, yeah. My partner of 27 years and I are now engaged. Um, so, Congratulations. Thank you. Very long engagement. Very long engagement. <laughs> and I'm hoping sometime we'll get here sometime soon. But it was principally because of, uh, well, I really wanted to and also because of health issues. You never know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, that's a bit of a long story. But but there are good reasons to be married legally. And I would never have believed when I was young that such a thing was possible. Um, a lot of what has changed is because of the AIDS crisis and the world got to see who we are um, as people. Um, so one huge change is that so many LGBTQ people are out. When I first I did my first book, The Male Couples Guide in 1988, there were no celebrities or um, uh, there were no celebrities of any kind who were out. Um, and today, you know, it's, I won't say they're a dime a dozen, um, but there are certainly plenty of them. You know, was thinking about, especially during this period of, uh, you know, racial and social unrest that took place in, in 2020, really made me just sit down in my culture, sit in it, you know, really understand it, digest it, uh, and feel it more. And I realized like, you know, there were black advocates who were gay, you know, that never got the shine. There's someone named uh, Bayard Rustin. I saw on, on your uh, episode, someone that just really, really struck out to me as 
just a powerful figure in, in gay history. Would you mind just touching about him? Yeah, I bet you didn't know who Bayard Rustin was or that he wasn't part of your education even when you studied civil rights in school, right? Not at all. Not at all. Me neither. And it turns out Bayard Rustin was Martin was a, a, a chief mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was also the principal architect of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And in some of the, some of the film from that, that March on Washington, you see him speaking. But he was largely kept in the background because he was an out gay man. Um, he was he was thrown out of the movement twice, the black civil rights movement twice because he was gay, found his way back in and that he navigated that world at a time when when the government was conspiring to try to, to discredit the black civil rights movement. And one way they tried to discredit it was by suggesting there was a relationship between Dr. King and Bayard Rustin. So uh, so Bayard Bayard's role um, uh, in terms of, of how much it was publicized, was carefully monitored. So um, I didn't learn about Bayard until much later myself. And feel, I kind of feel like I know him so well through his audio tapes that yeah. I call him Bayard, um, but really he's, a, he's, he's Mr. Rustin. Um, we met his surviving partner, Walter Nagel, and uh, we were in search of audio tape of Bayard Rustin. We knew that he'd given a speech about his sexuality to the University of Pennsylvania in 1987. And uh, we couldn't find any tape. And it turned out my executive producer knew a woman uh, who was the parent of some kids at the same school her kids went to. And she grew up in the same building as Bayard Rustin and Walter Nagel and was in and out of their apartment all the time. So she introduced us to Walter. And we asked Walter if he knew of any tapes. And it turned out he had a box of tapes under his bed. He had recorded all of Bayard's speeches and interviews for the 10 years they were together, including a 1987 interview with the uh, Washington Blade where Bayard Rustin talked about his sexual orientation and what impact it had on his relationship with Dr. King and the movement. And that's the episode that you heard. It was an interview with a woman named Peg Byron. Um, and it's extraordinary to hear it. And it is, I, I think it's, I'm proud of a lot of our work. It's one of the interviews I'm most proud of that a white Jewish kid from Queens could uh, be a part of a team that found this tape and was able to bring to light and to life this incredibly important figure from the black civil rights movement, who was one of us. Um, and someone young people can look to as a pioneer. I'm not a pioneer compared to Bayard Rustin. He was, out, he was out decades before I was out and he paid a high price for it, but he was determined to be who he was. Um, he's, a, he's an incredible role model. I wish he were still alive. I didn't get to interview him because I didn't start my work until 1988. He was already dead by then. Um, so we were able to find this earlier tape um, and bring his story to life. One thing, uh, I did this piece with the New York Times and Ancestry about my ancestry recently. And one thing that was really important for me was sometimes when you're a part of the other community, um, which like not male, white, male, heterosexual, straight community, whatever, uh, a lot of the, um, the reporting that gets done on us as other people is sometimes the traumas that, that happen to us. But I was, it was really important that I wanted people to walk away with the joy of what it is to be black. Being black is so much fun. It's so dope. And um, I want to ask you, what is, it, what is the, the, the happiest part or the best part about being gay? Having a chance to sit here and talk with you. You know, it's just, it's, it's fun to talk about these things. You know, it's fun to be a part of, um, well, for me, it's been fun uncovering our history for one thing. Um, um, and you asked such a good question, but you know, I've not been asked that question before. 
Um, so much, so many of the early interviews, I was treated like a specimen, like I was something that people were looking at under a microscope, um, something that crawled out from under a rock. But um, I wouldn't give up my life for anything. Eric, you know what? We'll take a quick break. When we get back, we're getting more into your podcast, Making Gay History. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we get more into your podcast, tell me, uh, how did you first discover the medium of podcasting? <laughs> Corey, now you're going to make me show my age. I'm trying to think, you know, I listen to a lot of radio. I love radio on demand. So before I listened to podcasts, I would listen to things like uh, NPR, All Things Considered, on uh, audio on demand later, you know, which, which one would call a podcast now, or Fresh Air, or any of those more mainstream uh, radio programs that they recorded and then made available afterwards as, um, um, as audio on demand. But as far as podcasts, before my podcast, I don't think I ever listened to a podcast. I also didn't have uh, any social media channels, Twitter, Instagram. Wow. Um, so, I mean, the podcast was, was something of an accident. We had planned to use uh, clips from the Making Gay History archive. I've had more than, more than 100 interviews that I conducted for my book, Making Gay History, which was first published in 1992. I, had, uh, I was working with... Um, education partners who develop uh, curricula for um, LGBTQ inclusive American history curricula for K through 12. And they were going to use short clips from my archive for uh, to anchor lesson plans. And to make a long story short, the producer I hired, Sarah Birmingham, to help uh, cut tape, well, to cut tape because I can't cut tape, um, as she edited these three hour interviews down to 18 minutes, 15 minutes, with a goal of coming to uh, uh, getting down to three to six minutes, she said, this sounds like a podcast. And she was a former BBC producer, former uh, NPR producer, NPR local in Arkansas. And um, she said, well, I don't know how to make a podcast. Um, so I'm going to go to podcast school. So she went to five-day podcast school um, over Labor Day weekend in 2016. And um, one of the teachers who was there to judge the work uh, was Jenna Weiss-Berman, who um, co-founded Pineapple Street Studios, one of the hottest podcast production companies around. And she loved the work. She heard two pieces Sarah was working on, one with Dr. Evelyn Hooker and one, one with Wendell Sayers, who was the first African-American attorney to work for the state attorney general in Colorado and was involved in gay civil rights in the late 50s. And Jenna said to Sarah, how can I help? This needs to be a podcast. And we already had a grant to do this education work, but, but the deal with the grant was we had to have some of the work out for LGBT History Month in October of 2016. So five weeks after Sarah took her class, we launched the Making Gay History podcast with a fully fledged website um, because we wanted to do archival photos and an article with each episode um, so that it would deepen the experience of the listener and be useful for schools. I do not recommend launching a podcast in five weeks. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a lot of work. You know what? I, I, I know that people can read the show notes and they probably get an idea, obviously, about the title of your show what Making Gay History is all about. But in your own words, can you give me the elevator pitch of what the show is all about? 
Yes, um, Making Gay History brings LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it. Mining my archive, my more than 30-year-old archive of interviews that I conducted for a book of the same name. Um, that's Making Gay History. And what it is, is time travel through, through archival audio. You get to hear the voices of people, some people you may have heard of, like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Vito Russo, Larry Kramer, um, and uh, no, we haven't done Anne Northrup yet, um, Ellen DeGeneres um, from more than 20 years ago. Um, so it's, it's the experience of history through storytelling, which I love. I generally find most written history to be really dull. Um, and so when, when I first got a call to do this, the, the book, I was not so keen on the idea. I'm not a historian, but I love the idea of storytelling. Um, and the editor asked me if I'd be interested in doing a book like Studs Terkel's Working. Studs Terkel was a famous oral historian. Um, I think it's learning about history through people's real stories um, is so much more interesting than learning about dates and places. The gay community is so diverse. And you've interviewed people from all different spectrums of the gay community. But is there a common thread between all of those people that you've interviewed thus far? There is, and my archive isn't as diverse as, as it would be if I were doing, it, doing the book today. Um, but we, I really strive to speak to a range of people. The challenge with doing an oral history and in doing it in a book covering a period of history was each story had to move the story forward. And I, had, I wanted to be geographically diverse and also diverse in terms of the kinds of people I interviewed. Yes, there is one recurring theme, two maybe. People just wanted to live. They wanted to have their lives and they wanted to find someone to love. So there were two principal, mm. really two principal motivators uh, among the people I interviewed, anger um, and a wish to find love, um, a wish to find love, to meet somebody. Um, and I was surprised by that because I often said to people, boy, you have, you're, you're really courageous. And no one, absolutely no one would acknowledge being courageous. It was anger that drove people about being beaten, about having someone they loved killed, about losing a job. They were angry and they wanted to make the world a better place for the next generation. Wow. And Eric, before we get into our podcasters picks, is there a message? Is there something that you want listeners to walk away with from listening to your show? Yes, I want people, LGBTQ people in particular, to feel that they have ancestors, they have family. Um, so many of us grow up feeling isolated, um, that we don't, uh, that there's no one who came before us, that there weren't people who cared about us. We have ancestors that date back decades and centuries. Well, Eric, we've gone to a point of the show called our podcasters picks. Now, this is when I asked the guests of today's show to provide me with their top three favorite podcasts that they enjoy that we should be listening to. So Eric, take it away. There's a podcast called The Logbooks. It's out of the UK. It's also a history podcast. I love it. They use the logbooks from the, um, the gay hotline from the 1970s and 80s um, in the UK. That's oh, wow. Cool. So it's called The Logbooks. I just love the two people who host it. Um, Tash, uh, Tash Walker and Adam Z. Smith are the co-hosts. Love that podcast. Um, another podcast I just binge listened. It's, it's really kind of painful. Um, it's really painful. Goodbye to all this. It's uh, BBC um, World Service. It's uh, out of Australia. Uh, it's a woman who, uh, whose husband died and she's raising two young children. It's so beautifully produced. Um, it's audio memoir at its best. And a third, I listen to so many podcasts now, but one I really love is 99% Invisible. Uh, my background is in um, urban planning and architecture. 
Um, I don't know how I wound up as a historian journalist. Um, and it's about the, the environment that we don't notice and things we, we don't notice in the world. Um, again, 99% Invisible, great episodes and also lots of articles. So those are my, my three top recommended uh, podcasts. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Eric Marcus. Be sure to check out his amazing podcast, Making Gay History, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Justin Richards. Music for this episode was produced by Richie Quake. And are you down with OPP? If so, check out opp.news for the latest in podcast news and releases. And hold up, while you're still listening, how about giving me a five-star rating and leaving me a comment in the Apple app? It will really mean a lot. Well, I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pa bless everybody. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.